0: This is WexCast, the podcast series of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for The Wex. Recently, we had the pleasure of visits from two filmmakers with prior connections to our film video studio program and strong creative ties to their respective hometowns. Guy Madden is well known as a son of Winnipeg, Canada, even making a pseudo-documentary about it, My Winnipeg, in 2007. Matt Porterfield is equally synonymous with Baltimore, having set his four feature films there, including Sollers Point, the new drama that brought Matt to the center on June 9th. Nonetheless, both filmmakers have recent work connected to a city that's not their own, and each of these projects has been seen at the WEX. Guy's visit on May 11th was prompted by the local premiere of The Green Fog, a found-footage quote-unquote remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, commissioned by the San Francisco International Film Festival. You heard some of its soundtrack, performed by Kronos Quartet, a minute ago. And in addition to screening Seller's Point, throughout June in the Box, we're presenting Matt's first narrative short, Take What You Can Carry, a story of an American expatriate artist shot entirely in Berlin. Guy and Matt spoke with us during their visits about how location informs their work and how each adapted to a change of scenery. First up, director of film video Dave Philippi talks with Guy about the San Francisco-centric The Green Fog.
1: The Green Fog is not your first commission. You've had a couple of those in the past, and this film was com- was commissioned by uh, Noah Cohen and the San Francisco Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about um, your experience with the city of San Francisco prior to this project? Did you have any perceptions, or maybe you'd spent quite a bit of time oh, there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I'll say right off the bat, I love getting
2: commissions. Um, there's a sense during the... Uh, that I've always had, living and working in Winnipeg. I'm 62 years old. For my whole life, that no one's really paying attention. So when I get an invitation from someone to make something, they're, they're offering money and more importantly, they're suggesting that they have trust that you will <laughs> in you to deliver something. It's really inspiring and it makes me work re- harder than usual. I should be working hard all the time, <laughs> but I just but I'm just. There's just one more person to please, I don't have to just please myself, I have to please the commissioning person, the entity. And um, Noah Cowan had commissioned me in the past when he was at TIFF in Toronto, when they were building their new Bell Lightbox, it was brand new. He commissioned me to make some installation loops that would haunt this brand new building and make it seem older. And he had been a distributor of mine for a short film even before that, many years ago. I can't even maybe in the 1990s. So we've had a relationship, and he's, oh, he always sort of keeps me in mind, possibly because he knows I work cheaply and, uh, and that I really throw myself into things. And so I was thrilled to get this commission because I had just started thinking this often happens to me. I'd realized that time had suddenly. I'd lost control of it and that another year would go by and I I wouldn't have a film on my filmography and it would look bad (laughs) years from now after my death. You know, (laughs) what's going on here? He's not very ambitious. And so all of a sudden I had something that I had to deliver within a couple months. This time he knew that I worked with uh, Evan and Galen Johnson, the Brojo's, my partners. Um, Together we formed the the filmmaking entity uh, or... Um, Triumvirate. Yeah, that's right. Uh, no one is development limited the Winnipeg-based uh, film cooperative or whatever. It's not a cooperative. Collaborative. Anyway, this was perfect because I've had um, an even longer term relationship with San Francisco Film Festival than I have had with the Wexner Center. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... the the San Francisco International Film Festival under Peter Scarlett was the first one outside of Canada to have one of my movies. In 1989, they played Gimli Hospital, and that was the first time I'd been to the city of San Francisco. I flew in there. Winnipeg, my hometown, where I'd spent the first 33 years of my life, is billiard table flat. Mm -hmm. And just the cab ride from the airport, I was so terrified of the hills. (laughs) I remember just thinking, I want to go... Home. I could I almost asked the cab driver to just turn around and take me back to the airport. I was really scared, but uh, the film played quickly, and the, all the nerves uh, went away. George Gunn served drinks behind the bar at this, you know, at this traditional bar, and I got really drunk, <laughs> and um, I just felt so good that I survived the screening. And I can say this because I. Don't have that many shameful drinking moments. Uh, I can almost brag about it, but I actually passed out on a sidewalk in <laughs> San Francisco on my first night there. I think that at a, slope. a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it was on, like on a hill. Like, I, I fell, fell asleep on a, an incline. So it was not only the first day I'd spent on a hill, but I passed out on it. And with my pants slightly down a little bit, there's a little bit of my lower back was exposed was, or something, yeah, and it started raining, and I started getting pelted on my backside <laughs> with rain, and that woke me up. And uh, so that was the beginning of a love affair, a little kiss from that city by the bay, um, and I've and I've always kind of loved it. And I went to the Castro Theater uh, the next night to watch Peter Scarlet narrate. Um, uh Nibelungen, the Fritz Lang picture, and and he had a great voice and the, the giant organ vibrated. And it was it was just my first time in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So I it was just so full of just lively, crazy like just not Canadians. Mm-hmm. You know, just mm-hmm. just hootin' and hollering in the dark, Queens and um, just cinephiles and neighborhood Denizens and I don't know it was just so exciting to me. I thought silent films were things people endured I liked them, but Mm -hmm. I thought but to see uh, a Gigantic theater like that packed with people just like having a great time and um, I don't know I I just kind of fell in love with the place and I try to get back there as often as possible Mm -hmm. with my films and I'm always thrilled and I've had a good time with every director since Peter Scarlet mm-hmm. and um, and and it's great that Noah ended up there, it's funny. Travel. Um, travel just must be so much different since movies uh, were invented because there weren't that many surprises other than the sheer terror that hills brought me. Mm-hmm. They were really picturesque to look at in in um, the TV show streets of San Francisco that I knew very well and and uh, countless other movies, uh, Vertigo, that I'd seen set in San Francisco, and too many to count. Every now and then, I, I wasn't even particularly when I was watching movies as a kid, noting where a story was set, but every now and then you'd see something like the Golden Gate right. Bridge and go, yeah, eventually you'd go, that's uh, set in San Francisco. And even whether it was important to the director or not, that the viewer knew it was set in San Francisco, you'd just note it's San Francisco, mm-hmm. because it's got to be one of the most visually distinctive cities in America, right. you just see it at a glance, you know, there's New York, and there's um, uh, San Francisco, and yeah. maybe L.A., And every, but uh, some other cities can be easily um, played by other cities in movies, but San Francisco has got to be
1: played by San Francisco. It's almost like two films to me, it's obviously this um, homage to San Francisco, and it's, you know, Well known now that it's it's also your recutting or restaging or homage to to Vertigo as well, Um, and and you touched on a little bit, but it's it's remarkable how no matter where you are in the city, you always have this sense, you know. And it could be like the 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 cheapest, most cliche written television drama, or it can be the most picturesque, you know, Hollywood film. It's it benefits from this beautiful, um, iconic city. And I'm just wondering, like, as you were looking through the footage or working with the Joe Bros, um, <laughs> just maybe what, what was coming through in the footage, like if, if you started to see themes emerging, like filmmakers using right. the city in similar ways? Yeah, I, when we got the commission, it, uh, Noah didn't say, I want you
2: to organize it around the plot lines right. of vertigo. He said just um, the commission was make a 40-minute, it ended up being just slightly over 60 minutes, make a 40-minute tribute to San Francisco at the cinema, you know. Um, And Kronos Quartet will play to it on closing night. So uh, my first instinct was to think it would be a city symphony, like Berlin's Symphony of the Great City, or Man with the Movie Camera, or Apropos de Nice, or one of those things, Mm -hmm. where you just show a city waking up in the morning, and going about its business and then having a wild nightlife and then going to bed at night. Maybe something like that. But whatever it is our preconceptions were, uh, we knew we just had to start watching a lot of these movies. The first thing we did was just Google up movies set or shot Mm. in San Francisco. And there was a really interesting list. They just proliferate with each additional year. There's more and more. We weren't that interested in a lot of the more... uh, recent product, even though our chief collaborator was a fair usage lawyer, it just seemed like something that was still in theatres might be more litigious, mm. uh, where, or something that hadn't even come out on you know any other platform. But we just started watching movies from whatever, and then uh, eventually we expanded it to TV without really asking Noah if that was okay or not, because there was just such good connective tissue in the streets of San Francisco. Mm. And later, Galen discovered I should have known about this because I was alive, in the and watching TV in the 80s when Hotel was on Arthur Haley's mm-hmm. Hotel, uh, set in San Francisco, starring James Brolin as mm-hmm. the uh, manager of a big hotel. It's a big soap opera thing. Wonderful, uh, whatever the whatever it was shot on film and then transferred yeah. to VHS or something, whatever it is. It's got great texture and it's distinctly different than the shot on film, maybe 16, uh, that Streets of San Francisco is, and then, I don't know, we just started downloading these movies and watching them a lot, and, you know, just as we started cataloging things, there's a lot of things that these movies had in common. Cars driving up and down hills, uh, people running across rooftops, Uh, People falling off of things. People fall off things more and and hang by their fingernails (laughs) off of things more in San Francisco set movies than any other city. Um, uh, There were, you know, of course, the bridges and the bay and people falling into the bay and then uh, Chinatown. And we started, while we are cataloging this, we started cataloging other things too because San Francisco is an important... Um, city for so many reasons. It's the birthplace of the Black Black Panthers. Uh, it was kind of uh, the epicenter of the summer of love. Hippies seem to come out of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Of course, they went there, but um, beatniks and the Castro district and AIDS is this tragic, you know, just concentration of sad, sadness. Um, and Before that, an unbelievable uh, liberal happiness, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's just so much going on there. The earthquake, streetcars, the famous, uh, the hills. And so we started to catalog these things. We even started to catalog the number of places, just at the, the time code, at which point a character in a San Francisco set movie mentioned another city, mentioned Tokyo or New York or Baltimore or Winnipeg even, and uh, we were hoping to build something around that, or around rooftops, or around driving. But at a certain point, we realized that all these elements were in vertigo, and that some of them seemed to be in vertigo, almost shot-by-shot impersonations mm-hmm. of vertigo as homages. But some of them were, looked like homages, but they appeared in movies made before vertigo was made. And it's almost as if the city seemed to demand these shots mm-hmm. um, of Hitchcock, as well as Joe... Schmuck and mm-hmm. you know Alan Smithy and, mm-hmm. um, so we some one of us three and we can't agree on who it was just smart aleckly said hey let's remake Vertigo and then I think it's even evolved to the point where we'll have an advantage over Hitchcock because we've seen his movies and we'll you know which is now famously sits atop the Sight and Sound once a decade poll right. of the greatest films the first of all time, time, time. Ever, yeah. so we have a chance to watch Hitchcock's film and improve upon it <laughs> because, you know, we can see when it's a little long. Even people who really love Vertigo admit it's a little long. And so we've, you know, we're tightening it up. We can fix some, you know, implausibilities here and there. <laughs> and um, and so I guess in 2022, when the, the next Sight and Sound poll comes out, we... We're getting our hopes up a bit too high, but we're hoping (laughs) Green Fog sits just above Vertigo. And and I hope by then to remake Ozu's Tokyo Story as well, so maybe we can sit with Green Fog and whatever we call our Tokyo Story remake um, at the top two spots, Mm -hmm. just shooting out of nowhere almost with this. But we really do have an advantage. When you take two of the greatest films of all time and then just fix them, it feels like
1: a cheat somehow. I have a sense that you had a really good time. It sounded like the uh, Joe Bros did a lot of the editing. But they I'm, did. But I'm guessing even that you weren't there because you were at Harvard. Yeah. It just it seems like a film that would have been incredibly fun to make. When you yeah. watch it, it it's delirious is the word I just keep coming back to. It's so much fun seeing how San Francisco is used, seeing which clips are included, but then obviously the way that the clips are edited together and the reactions of the characters and the, you know, all the different nice, interesting collisions that happen between clips. We just like delighting each other with stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we, uh, we all
2: like to think we're smart, <laughs> and, and so we tell each other that we've got the widest brow range in cinema that we, we're capable. when we want to, you know just the way people used to talk about Picasso, he could draw correctly if he wanted to, you know but that we could reach back and make something really sophisticated and smart, but we also are willing to go low. And so we have a, this high and low brow range that we feel is we like to think is the widest in, in movies, but laughter is the most instantaneous feedback, and the goofy stuff just starts to come, and so, and one thing about making a movie with two other people, uh, you make each other laugh. When you're making a movie by yourself, the way I I used to, Mm -hmm. there was, and I was also secretive about what I was cutting together, I wouldn't show it to anyone, I was hoping to provoke laughter, but I wasn't getting the timing right, and there was, I don't know, I wasn't getting the feedback, and just ended up with spending a lot of lonely, brooding nights in the hotel room during film festivals. But this is this was fun to make. You get six weeks off from Harvard at Christmas break, so we spent as much time as possible watching movies. We maxed out at about eight a day. We watched them and logged them and that's when we decided at some point that this is vertigo, we'll remake it. But then I had to go back. Uh, We were already supposed to have delivered the movie by January 16th or something, but I went back to Harvard on February 4th or something Mm -hmm. like that, and I think Galen and Evan delivered the movie two nights before the April screening. They'd been delivering fragments of it to the composer so he could frantically compose things, and, um, and so... I think Kronos Quartet finally just saw it 48 hours before wow. and, and played it. So we went way over time, and normally on a commission I pride myself on coming in under budget and early, but it was just too big a project, and it ended up being 60 minutes long instead of 40. It ended up being just the, the length mm-hmm. that it should be, I think. Um, where, where was the score recorded? The score must have been recorded wherever Kronos is
1: based. They're
2: they're a Bay Area
1: based. Yeah, I mean, they were just here in in January with Sam Green. And, um, I mean, the score is fantastic as well. Yeah. And I I just didn't know if they tried to do a live recording the night at the San Francisco festival. No, they
2: recorded it in a studio. For a while, if you wanted to watch it digitally, it only existed with our temp score, which foolishly was Bernard Herrmann. You know, oh, yeah. from the original, because so that made it seem even more like Vertigo. And it's not fair to a composer like Jacob Garchick, who composed the Chronos score, to use Bernard Herrmann, because it just creates so many crazy associations right. that aren't going to be there for viewers when they actually watch the movie. I now forget what that movie was like with the Bernard Herrmann score, and I I really love what Garchik and Kronos did. Yeah, it's such an important part of the film. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It really is. And especially um, early on, there's a driving sequence that just the music is driving, Mm -hmm. and and there's hills in it, and it's beautiful, and I love it. And uh, I couldn't make it out to the live performance, so I didn't know what it sounded like. I only heard the MIDI version of it, Mm -hmm. and and I liked it, but I didn't love it. And now I love it, you know, now that I've heard it. Evan and Galen did a sound mix with it so that the sound effects and the voices sit just right in mm-hmm. it and things like that. But I've seen it live now um, uh, recently out in Stanford, and uh, it, it plays really nicely. I was pretty pleased
1: with it. I was surprised that you didn't try to figure out a way to get the climax of um, the Blake Edwards thriller, is it Edge of the City, Edge oh, of yeah. Darkness, at right like, candlestick park? Right. I know,
2: I know since I'm such a baseball fan, you and I uh, both, Evan and Galen get perverse sometimes. If I ever uh, try to push something that'll be too crowd-pleasing, mm-hmm. Evan especially, he'll say, I, there's no way I want to make something that just pleases audience. <laughs> you know, I don't want to just make something like a really good Academy Awards montage. You know, this has got to be puzzling. That's why there's a proliferation of dining sequences in the movie where no one says anything to mm-hmm. each other. It's there just to not please. Uh, but I, th- I find them kind of delightful. Oh, I did just want to mention about the workload. I had to go back and teach. I was lucky enough to have a teaching gig at Harvard. Then, it's over now, I'm looking for a job. Um, but that's when they started to assemble it and edit it and, and they would send me Dropbox versions mm-hmm. of fragments of the film. And there's so many outtakes. There's really magnificent sections that they assembled which just didn't make it into the movie. And it was late in the game that uh, Galen discovered uh, a DVD box set of Hotel. And he's not a guy that ever just says he's happy. He's one of those guys that, you know, I love hanging out with him, but he, he just doesn't light up a room, <laughs> you know. But he, uh, he just said that he's uh, never been happier. than He's, he's got a, an apartment on the 26th floor. In Winnipeg, which you know you can see all the way to the west coast. I was going to say there. that's got to be the top
1: story of Winnipeg, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
2: <laughs> exactly. And he would just watch Hotel with all the lights out, and he just said he's never been happier in his life than <laughs> <laughs> and picking and choosing things and out of Hotel, something he never thought he would be doing. And it was a real strange motherload of wonder to when you're a found footage uh, scavenger. When you're looking specifically to remake a vertigo right. and you find something that that can stand in either exactly or euphemistically for a scene, it's a real thrill. And you may find it in a in a you know season three, episode seven of some <laughs> forgotten TV show, or you may find it in an underground film mm-hmm. or a B movie or a big budget thing that you forgot. I always thought there would be a shot of Whoopi Goldberg from Sister Act opening the door in a church tower and scaring um, <laughs> scaring Jimmy Stewart into dropping Kim Novak off the tower. So I begged um, the boys to look for that shot, <laughs> but the closest they could come was um,
1: another nun mm-hmm. opening a door. So much of your career is either about film history or kind of alludes to film history, yeah. or or swims around in this maybe film history that never existed, and then here's a film where it's literally kind of stitched together from film and television history. And um, did that give you any special satisfaction, having been so preoccupied with film history and all of your work you know, over the years? Yeah, it did. And, and I guess after
2: decades of making films from scratch that kind of evoked or flat-out imitated Old timey movies. It was really a pleasure to work with someone else's footage and assemble it together. And I've done a lot of thinking over the years. I no longer edit my own movies. Um, the boys edited this one. My f- friend John Gerdebeck has been editing for me since 2002. Cowards Bend the Knee. Since um, these people do exactly what I'd like to do, but way better. Um, I feel I'm still sort of in there, and they, you know, and I give my feedback now and then, but have become kind of more of a, a coach or even a play-by-play announcer of edits uh, while they're happening, and more of an analyst, a color guy in the booth. <laughs> and I and I've really become a fan of the Kuleshov effect—that uh, thing where a shot uh, shot's meaning changes radically depending on its context. So here you have uh, previous projects with the Brojos, where um, the Forbidden Room. And this, this online interactive seances, which recombined fragments of lost movie remakes that we did, which is just one big bag of variables dropped like a bag of ball bearings on the floor, and they're just scattering all over the place and recombining themselves in those narrative clusters. I was pretty excited to s- just see what, what you could do, that you could make a vertigo out of all these unbelievably heterogeneous source Footage, scenes, shots, things, lurid plots, classy plots. I don't know. It's, um, it was really exciting to, to, to see those collisions between decades a shot from mm. the 90s colliding with a shot from the 30s, uh, the next one up from the 70s, various emulsions and digital textures because audio was still an element, even though Kronos played over top, there was still a sound mix. We allowed little sound cues from the Quinn Martin Productions right. to come through from McMillan and Wife, and just little dramatic go-to-commercial end music cues. I don't know, just hearing all that stuff colliding up against each other and combining. Plus, there's this pleasure of just recognizing actors uh, from the an- relative anonymity of television's right. past. right. There's, I think, John Saxon is in the movie from, like, five different decades. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, he could easily be... I don't know. I love
1: that. I like. To, I feel like I've worked with John Saxon now. And older actors who are long since past their prime yeah. and, you know, kind of um, finishing their career in television after right. being in the movies. Right,
2: yeah, that's really strange. Uh,
1: Hotel had... Um,
2: a rising young Alec Baldwin or Sarah Jessica Parker, but it also had you know Howard Duff uh, toward the end of his life. It was, it's just such a strange melange. So if you even haven't seen Vertigo, it's, it's kind of a delight, I think. I, th- I think. I, I actually say that as a fan of watching it, because the boys assembled it. Um, the, and, and you can feel it in the room when you're watching it. It feels okay.
1: It is delightful. I mean, if you love movies, if people love your movies, I mean, it's, it's delightful. You oh, Thanks, Dave.
0: That was WEX Film Video Director Dave Phillippe talking with Guy Madden. Next up, Associate Film Video Curator Chris Stoltz kicks off a conversation with Matt Porterfield about the circumstances and inspiration behind Take What You Can Carry and its Berlin-based production. We'd like to thank both filmmakers for talking with us, and also thanks to you for listening.
3: Maybe we can just start by you saying how you came to make a, a film in Berlin.
4: Sure, uh, thanks, Chris. Um, I had been to the Berlinale, or the you know international festival film festival there, uh, a couple years running, um, with two of my films, and then just as a as a festival guest, and made friends with a number of uh, producers and filmmakers. Uh, one woman in particular um, named Susanna Karai, who had the idea that we might collaborate on something together. And it became a conversation between her and I and a cinematographer named Jenny Ludzeigl. The idea being that if I could just get myself to, to Berlin one summer, we would make a film together. And that's that's what we did. Um, thankfully, we had some support from Wexner at the Harvard Film Archive, and, uh, and that gave us the, the, the financing we needed. Um, it's a small film, uh, fairly simple, We got a lot of in-kind services, particularly in post. But it was a a great adventure for for me to try to make a city or a film in a city that I don't know as intimately as Baltimore.
3: So many of your Baltimore films are even named after the neighborhoods where they take place. And so, you know, even micro-local in a way. And Berlin, I don't know how much time you'd spent there in advance of this, but it's clearly also just stylistically, it's so much more of a... Somewhat improvised abstract film, which I imagine comes from some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Just what, uh, what you tried to do to avoid um, just a lot of the cliched ideas you might have about a novice in Berlin and what they would gravitate towards. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I wanted to be true to the, the fact that, that, you know, I am an outsider or a tourist. Um, so uh, I wrote a, a role for a, for a character for an American or North American um, artist who's living in Berlin. That felt like the, the honest sort of way to access the city. Uh, but I had two great guides in, in Susanna and Jenny. They were really careful and protective, you know, and, and, and thoughtful um, when it came to questions of representation and what, in fact, we would depict. So in the end, the film it's a film of largely interiors. <laughs> we don't see the big sort of iconic spaces that we we think of when we think of Berlin. Um, we do end on a park, um, but uh, I like that. I like the intimacy and the scale of the piece, um, and the fact that it examines domestic spaces, spaces that the characters occupy. Um, one, of course, is a performance space, um, but that each, each section has a very specific location tied to it, and that's a bit of how I work in Baltimore too. It's you know, I'm, I'm inspired by space and interested in what it tells us about the characters that occupy it.
3: Well, and just thinking of cinema right now in Berlin, there's so many interesting things happening with the Berlin new school, and your work in, in some explicit ways is in dialogue with that through casting or mm-hmm. whatever. But I, I wonder how much that informed your approach or, or strategies you wanted to think through or how how much in the foreground or background of your mind that was.
4: I feel a real affinity for some of the filmmakers of the Berlin School, Angela Shanilek, who appears in Take What You Can Carry, Thomas Arslan in particular. I guess I discovered their work relatively recently. I mean, it was... I was, I was looking at work from the 90s for the first time just a few few years ago and seeing these films that I just felt a connection with, like as a filmmaker, as an artist, something I think maybe it comes from the fact that we share a lot of the same influences, Robert Bresson in particular. And uh, I, I, yeah, I wanted to sort of pay homage to a certain extent to, to these films and filmmakers, but... Um, that's why I cast Angela and was so thrilled when she agreed to, to appear in the film. Because I don't think they're super you know, these films are not super well known in the States, particularly Angela's. And I wanted to, uh, to reference this this film history and this this current uh, that I feel really connected with. And try to find the similarities between some of their stylistic choices and the choices that I've made in my own work to highlight the sort of commonalities. It was a, It was kind of a Um, a goal for me in making the film
3: and Berlin seems perfect for a scenario like this like I have so many friends from Brazil or England or a friend from Australia who are all living in in Berlin right now and it feels like a very transient city in a way where you know people involved in the arts are living there for a number of years or it may be dedicated to staying there, but it, it allows for projects like this in ways a lot of other cities might not. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Yeah.
4: It feels like a very global city, but as you say, transient as, as, as well. A lot of people passing in and out, um, like our character.
3: And this is uh, switching it up a little, but I wonder if just thinking about working in other places... we're not showing this work here, but you recently were involved with a film that was made in Buenos Aires in Argentina by Gaston Solnicki, and I'll let you say the name of the film, but maybe you could talk a little bit about thinking differently about place and space with that project, too, that you helped write.
4: (laughs) Kekshikalu. I believe I'm saying it right. I I co-wrote the thing, and I still can't it. had a different title when we were working on it together, actually. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was a really fun collaboration. I mean, it also born from some festival opportunities, some travel, uh, meeting Gaston, the filmmaker, in uh, Vienna first at the Viennale, and then again in Buenos Aires at Bafisi, starting a conversation, becoming friends, uh, admiring each other's work, imagining a scenario where we might work together. In the case of uh uh, he had shot a bunch of material in Uruguay about 20 hours and had the intention of shooting uh, in Buenos Aires uh, and invited me to to join him in writing the scenario uh, that, that, that he would shoot. And I did and came on as kind of a co-producer as well. Like when making Take What You Can Carry, I was there for about three months, um, the amount of time I have off from, from my university where I teach in summer. And yeah, we spent uh, like the first month just kind of traveling around, getting to know the place, um, a bit like we did in Berlin. And then a, another month writing, and then the third third month uh, was more or less all um, production. And that was a particular challenge for me because my Spanish is okay, but uh, Argentine Spanish is, is, is quick and fast and there's a lot of slang that I wasn't familiar with. So I, I sort of felt sometimes quite quite lost. But on the other hand, Gaston and I have a sort of there's a, there are visual aesthetic commonalities in our work. Uh, I think we, we, we have some of the same influences too. And, uh, and I, I felt that we were able to, to sort of collaborate in a real way on creating the image.
3: And so just I don't know, in terms of your artistic nourishment, Is this something you you feel increasingly interested in, moving beyond a place you know so deeply and intimately, and exploring other possibilities for place and stories?
4: Yeah, it's something I want to continue to try and do, um, if I'm able. I mean, there are other stories that I'd like to tell in Baltimore, but uh, I mean, I have a screenplay that I wrote for Baltimore back in, you know, Metal Gods back in like 2011, uh, that I'm now thinking about shooting in Tijuana Mexico <laughs> I have a project coming up in in France that uh, I wrote with uh, two collaborators uh, Jordan Mincer, a longtime producer of mine and, and Thomas Chatterton Williams and uh, yeah it's, it's something that would would shoot entirely in Europe uh, so yeah I don't know there's something I've learned through festival travel to the places that, that cinema has taken me that cinema is kind of like a nation in and of itself and and uh, there are these. I think lines of connection that we share um, as filmmakers from all over the world. So I, I'm I'm interested in those opportunities to collaborate with with other filmmakers and work in other cities.
3: I love that concept of of cinema as a nation unto itself, and just being you know a wanderer through that nation as as a viewer or as a maker. And uh, yeah, that's a lovely concept to end on. So thanks so much for taking the time to to talk with us about this. Well, my pleasure. Thank you, Chris.